John chapter 13. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Most gracious and kind Heavenly Father, as we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that you would minister to our hearts and souls this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us about the eternal, infinite Jesus Christ. And as we read this particular portion of Scripture in John chapter 13, Lord, I ask that you would allow us to cast our thoughts upon Christ and His finished work on the cross and His continual work in our lives, Lord, and that John chapter 13 is a recognition of the marvelous glories of the cross, the marvelous glories of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the wonderful work that He has done instead of sinners. But Lord, let us also see how it is a call for each and every Christian to be a servant. Lord, to not be a man of high esteem or a woman great in power and might, but Lord, make us those who are great in consideration of the service that we give one to another, the service that we have for our fellow brothers and sisters, for our church, but most importantly for our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that ultimate sacrifice that would allow us to be here, that would give us the desire to be in your presence, in the house that you've provided with your people, Lord. May we be mindful of all that you've done and all that you continue to do, Lord. Would you help us to not stray from the cross, but to cling and hold fast to Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In order that we receive the proper context of the verses that I would like to concentrate on this morning, I'll start with verse 1 and go through verse 20. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. If you do know them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is the, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. So we begin with verse 1. 
The same day, the same account also recorded in the Synoptic Gospels in Luke chapter 22, Mark chapter 14, and Matthew chapter 26. We have some different details in those Gospels that aren't defined for us here in John, but the message still rings loud and true, and as we gather all of those things together, we begin to paint the perfect picture of what has gone on, and it's just before the Passover. Jesus is present in his flesh. He's now aware that his hour has come. Up until this time, we've seen through the book of John, his hour has not yet come. He knows not the hour, and then now it is time. He's aware that his hour has come. And we see a great shift from the public ministry of Christ to the private ministry of Christ. The ministry in which he's with his disciples in private. Teaching. Admonishing to some degree. Comforting them of the things that are to come. And so we see this great shift. And then these last hours, Jesus, who would confine himself to his disciples, would then go and confine himself in prayer with God the Father. He knew that he would soon depart. And it says that he would go back to the Father from whence he came. He would be restored to his former glory. And he also knew that the events that were taking place are leading closer and closer and closer to his death, the cross of Calvary. This was yet another testimony of the perfect love of Christ for his people. A testimony of the perfect love that he has for you and I, those who believe in who he is, his person and his work, and have hopes that he will do what he's conquered in sin, that he will do what he's completed upon the cross, that he will do what he's promised, because it is certain. These are those who he says later in John chapter 17 are in the world, but not of the world. These are his sheep, the one whom he said he himself has chosen. And then we get to verse 2. A great prophecy is fulfilled. Judas's heart led astray by the devil. And we can't put all the credit on the devil for causing Judas this thing because we see that as the devil enters, the desires of Judas and Satan are one. They have the same motive to thwart the plans of God, to make Christ lower than he is, being the great high priest, the greatest man to ever live, God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity. And so Judas, Judas is attempting to begin his betrayal of Christ as it was prophesied in the Old Testament. He's now fulfilling and taking part in the foreordained destiny, in the plan of God that Christ would be delivered to his own people, that he would be raised upon the cross, die in our stead, buried, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And so this is the plan of God. The plan for one man, Judas, to betray a single man, the God-man Jesus Christ, so that in that one man, many could be saved. This is the quintessential application of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And it's written again in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where it says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is a foreshadow in Genesis of Christ and the work to come. And with the move on to verse 3, we see a peace and a joy that was surrounding, that was coming over Christ in the face of the agony that he would soon meet. He would soon suffer. One, because he was doing the will of the Father who sent him, doing the good and perfect will of God. And doing these things, he would also restore sinful flesh to God. He would redeem man and reconcile him to God. He was soon to be exalted to his rightfully high place, a place of fellowship with God, a place of fellowship where he once knew, fellowship that he once had, a closeness that he had been separated from, the only begotten in, in the midst of all of this, he was joyful because there would be in this great trial, this great tribulation, this death to come, there would be a redemption for his people. 
This was very soon to be accomplished. Redemption was not only to be started, it was not to be partially fulfilled or partially finished, but soon it would be completely finished. As he says on the cross to Telestai, all of these events and thoughts and actions have led to the point of our focus this morning with verse 4, Jesus arises from the supper and takes off his outer garment. In the most literal sense, he takes off his outer robe, this robe that would have been viewed by the people as the, the glorious garment. No one walks around thinking that their underwear are glorious. And neither does Christ. In this instant, he lays aside that outer glorious garment, the cloak in which he girds himself. His robe, and this is his raiment of glory. It represents who he is, his majesty, his glory, his power. And he would lay it aside to remain only in this inner garment, that which would have been looked at as the servant's garment, the lowliest of men, the wardrobe of a slave, the wardrobe of a servant. And according to 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elder. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is exactly what Christ was doing. He was giving grace to the humble. And at the same time, he was being clothed in humility. Taking off the outer garment to gird himself with a mere towel. And then we closer examine verse 4 and we see that Christ is eager to do this. He's eager to lay aside the garments that men regarded as glorious to fulfill that which Peter later speaks of. Clothing of humility, a clothing of servanthood. This is what Jesus has gone down to. Notice that he wasn't naked and then becomes clothed as a servant. He strips himself of that which was glorious down to lowly servanthood, putting on this towel in front of his disciples. They called him master, and yet here he is presenting himself as a servant. This wasn't the adornment that man puts on in self-pride or self-righteousness lifting himself up above someone else, but rather being stripped. He had no need of these things. He didn't have to grasp, as we know, for equality with God because Jesus Christ is the God-man. But he came, like he says in Matthew chapter 20, he came to serve. It says, But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so then we see that Jesus has taken this towel. He ties it around himself, it says. He's girded himself as if it was a belt. And he prepares for the event that is about to take place, the foot washing. And he's standing ready for that action which is necessary. It's necessary because the feet are dirty, but that's just the temporal understanding. There's also the spiritual understanding of cleaning, spiritual cleansing. And he did so, so that when he goes to the cross, that his actions would be made known through what he had previously shown the disciples. Through the foot washing, through the servanthood that he expressed, they would understand exactly what he's done on the cross. And so now we're at verse 5, and Jesus pours water into the washbowl. Jesus draws water for washing his disciples' feet, those who call him master. And so he begins, and as the feet are being washed, he wipes them with that which is his clothing. And it's important for us to understand that foot washing was part of the culture. Foot washing was part of the way of these people. And it was necessary. 
you would travel. It's not to say that Jewish people were nasty by any means. I'm sure they were just like people today. There were probably some that didn't bathe and weren't very clean. But on average, we would be brought to believe that they were a people who liked to pride themselves with cleanliness. And so as they would walk uh, and travel, of course, they didn't have sneakers or boots. They were either barefoot or had sandals. So their feet were exposed. They may have taken a bath, but as they go to their neighbor's house, their friends, their relatives, or as they travel to who knows what, the temple, wherever they may be going, they get dirty. Their feet get dust on them. And so it was a ritual that when you would come to the house, wherever your destination was, that person would have their servant wash your feet. You didn't need a whole bath. And then when I come to your house, if I'm going to have dinner... I've taken a shower before I get there, and let's say I've walked in barefoot. You don't say, hey, Tim, come in and take a shower before you eat with us. But no, we do something similar. We go and wash our hands because it's that which has gotten dirty since we bathed, right? Our hands. For the Jewish people, it would have been the hands and, and the feet here. And so they have these dirty feet, and this ritual is taking place. And remember, they're all aware of this, and it's, it's quite unique because when we look to the Synoptic Gospels, we, we see that they've come together for this supper. They've entered this room, and it might have been because foot washing was necessary that we see that there's an argument that breaks out about who's the greatest. Could have been because no one wanted to wash the other person's feet, but we'll see that Christ's soon silences this and in verse 6 Christ arrives to Simon Peter up until this point it's been very quiet Jesus has washed the feet of the disciples and no one said a word it's a humility about the people that their master is washing their feet can you imagine if your boss was to go out and wash your feet or your employer was to go outside and wash your car for you it'd be kind of weird it will be strange because you're there to serve him. But in this instance, Jesus is washing the feet of the disciple and they're all awestruck. They don't know what to say. From every account that we have, there's silence up until this point. And it says in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, one day he got in a boat, speaking of Jesus with his disciples. And keep this in mind. That he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they went out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, this is the important part. They said, Master, Master, we're perishing. They're calling Jesus Master. It says he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and waters that they obey him? The idea is that until this point, Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples, these men who have called him by name, Master, Master. By every sense of what we understand from our culture, their culture, hospitality, certainly they knew that the place of the foot washing really should be the disciple washing the feet of the master. But this wasn't the case. The immediate understanding is that Jesus had saved those people on the boat from the storm. But look how they addressed him, master, master. And then now as we see again, he's showing salvation through the foot washing. The master once again is serving those who are his disciples, those who follow him. Any of the disciples would most assuredly have washed the feet of Jesus and would have been glad to. And some people say, well, how do you know? Because if you have a love for Christ, there's things that you would do that you didn't do before you were saved. It's just a truth. It's a reality of the Christian walk. There are things that were below us that now we don't mind because we have a love and a zeal for Christ. And you can bet your bottom dollar that any of the disciples at this moment would have rather been down on the ground washing the feet of Jesus. 
Then Luke chapter 22, like I said, there was a dispute that had arose. Now there was this dispute and asked which of them would be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. That's what he said. There's this idea in the culture that one who is great is not one who serves. But Jesus is soon to bring an end to that. He's going to show us that the greatest doesn't become the greatest by moving up. But the greatest is the one who moves down. Makes himself lowly. Because he's not boasting in the things of the flesh. But he's boasting in the things of God. He's willing to go whatever step it takes. Go the extra mile. Go to the ends, the bottom, the worst of the worst. For his people. Likewise, we as the church should be willing to serve others. And then we get to the point where Christ has approached Peter. And Peter asks, Lord, do you wash my feet? Very emphatically, Peter says this. Do you wash my feet? You're the master. What business have you to wash my feet? He's questioning Christ. This is the very same Peter who would soon deny Christ. Imagine that. In one sense here, we see Peter is saying, you're the master. Why would you wash my feet? And then just a few moments later, we'll see that Peter is denying who Christ is with every breath. But he asked, do you wash my feet? How can one so great wash my feet? That's what Peter's asking. How can the Son of God bring himself to such a lowly task? The response is in verse 7. Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. The Lord was essentially rebuking Peter's question, Peter's response to his approaching Peter for the foot washing. He was rebuking him. And Peter had proclaimed in his question, with his question, that Christ was out of place to wash the feet. He was out of place in doing what he wanted to do. He was saying, hey, you have no business washing the feet of disciples. As if Christ were ignorant to what was going on. As if he didn't know what he was doing. As if this was just happenstance. But of course we know it wasn't. Instead, Christ's purpose was to reveal a great spiritual truth. We don't always know for what immediate reason the Lord performs certain works, but we aren't called to know why the Lord works. We're just called to stand upon the promises of God, to rest in the person of Christ, and know that ultimately whatever He's doing, it's for the good of His people, it's for the good of His kingdom, for the glory of Himself and God the Father. This is something that Peter had soon forgotten as he questioned Christ. And then he responds... In verse 8 he says, Never shall you wash my feet. Now imagine this. The ultimately humble Peter in his humility saying, Lord, are you coming to wash my feet? Is now not so humble. And now he's telling Christ, No, you're not washing my feet. It's amazing. This is the power of the flesh over man. And so he responds this way in verse 8. And then Jesus again says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I must wash you, Peter. It's necessity. To deny the washing from Christ is to claim no relation to Him. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. If you deny the fact that I need to wash your feet, then you deny the fact that you need me. That you need a relationship with me, Peter. This is to deny... Relation is to deny obedience to Christ, submission to His Lordship, and it's also to reject communion with Christ. Christ must, in effect, be accepted wholly for us to be cleansed. For if we only accept Him in part, it will be non-complete and ineffective. We need the entire God-man Christ Jesus and everything that He has to offer because it will take nothing short of God Himself to reconcile sinful flesh to God. 
Also it's true that Peter, because he knew not why Jesus performed such an act, he should then, since he doesn't know, allow Jesus. He should say, hey, since I don't know what's happening here, Christ, I should let you. Why? Because we know that Christ knows more than Peter. Likewise, when we face a situation, we should be relying upon Christ, not knowing what His motives are. We know what the end is. But we don't know why, but we should embrace it because if Christ has it ordained for us, it must be good. It must be for our benefit. This should be true with Peter, but he's not considering these things as Christ is approaching him. A true relationship to the Savior is one that is revealed in the knowledge of what he's already done, what he's going to do. He doesn't know Peter. He doesn't know what Christ is doing. But in a sense, we do know what Christ is doing. He's refining those who belong to Him. He's washing, He's cleansing, both in the physical sense and in the spiritual sense, which is what He's trying to draw out from this when He says, you don't know yet, but you will. In the future, in the hereafter, you'll understand. This is the love of Christ for His creation. And then as the rebuke is accepted by Peter, he then responds with what we see there in verse 9. He said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. If this is what it takes, if this is what I have to have to have part with you, Lord, wash it all. And in one sense, Peter's wrong in saying this. Christ is the one who decides what we need. And he's saying... Peter, if I wash your feet, it's enough. But Peter, even though he's wrong in saying that, his attitude is now changed to something that's right. He's saying, Lord, wash me all. If this is what it is, I want it all, Lord, because it's from you. But he's really abusing the ability and the workings of Christ in that sense. So he responds as he does. And then we get to verses 10 through 12. And it says, Jesus said to him, He who bathes needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? So thus far, I've given you a glimpse at the events that have taken place. In their, from an earthly temporal standpoint, what is going on? And understanding from the perspective of the disciples with the limited knowledge, the cross not yet in their midst. They haven't seen what Christ has done yet. And so now it's essential that we look back over the passage to see what is spiritually a mystery up until the point of the crucifixion. And as I've said many times, there's the immediate temporal understanding of a passage of Scripture, but then there's that more important, meaty, spiritual connotation, the, the real truth, the eternal truth of what Christ has done. And John 13 is no exception. It might be one of the greatest spiritual truths of what Christ has done on Calvary. The washing of the feet in this chapter is likening, it's a metaphor, it's an analogy, a wonderful representation of the salvation that we have in Christ. It's a lesson of humility and the symbolic nature of spiritual cleansing for the believer. We must first understand how that we are men, as men, are dirty and in need of cleansing because if you don't get that, you miss the entire point. If it wasn't customary to wash the feet, then this wouldn't make any sense. Why are you washing that which is already clean? But the truth is that Christ is washing in the temporal sense feet that aren't clean, they're dirty. And in the spiritual sense, He's washing that which can never be clean unless it's done by Him. So we have to understand sin. Men are dirty. Sin is what makes men dirty. Every man since Adam born into this sin. So we look at Isaiah 64, 6. It says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. Through our birth as sons of Adam, we have become one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
Then Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. No man apart from Christ would ever say this. The truth is that through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we come to a place where we recognize that we're dirty and unclean and we need Christ to clean us. We're a people with spot and blemish, with stains of sin, and our own perceived self-righteousness is in fact unclean by all standards. Despite our own attempts, we are surely dirty before the sight of God. The disciples recognized this, and today we have to recognize this. Even our best efforts withheld us from good standing with the Almighty. And then we look at the ways in which we attempt to be clean. And Proverbs thirty twelve says, There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. The carnal, fleshly man recognizes himself as something that he isn't. He thinks he's pure, but he's not pure. He thinks he's clean, but he's filthy. He needs Christ. Now up until this point, the disciples, really we know that Peter has rebuked Christ because... He's going to die. Oh no. Don't do that. But the truth of the matter is that he must die. They haven't seen the truth of who Christ is and what he must do. What he must do. Excuse me. But they need to be cleansed. They haven't dealt with that yet. They're still thinking of an earthly Jesus. Who's there to fulfill the earthly needs. But Jesus is moving from feet to souls. He's moving from the temporal to the spiritual. Even the people whom God set apart were given to sin. And it's a direct consequence that they were considered unclean. Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 27 says, As for your adulteries and your lustful nings, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills in the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will you remain unclean? Think about this. The disciples claiming to be followers of Christ, claiming to love Christ and His people, have come into this room. They've remained unclean. They've had an argument. Who is greater? Nobody wants to wash the feet. Yet when... The master comes in. It's like the boss at work. Everybody gets busy. And, and now everybody's quiet because he's washing feet and they know that he shouldn't be. But he's relating a spiritual truth that he must be the one to clean. It's impossible to be clean any other way. Even so were the prophets and priests unclean. Jeremiah twenty three eleven. For both prophet and priest are polluted. Even in my house I have found their wickedness, declares the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 24, And your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath on you. How can you say, I am not defiled? I have not gone after Baals. Look at your way in the valley. Know that you have done you are a swift young camel entangling her ways. But God goes on in Revelation 22 to say this, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy, and let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy keep himself holy. This is the evidential need for cleanliness. A cleanliness that comes only from Christ. And so we see that sin has tarnished man. It infects and it decays that which was seemingly clean on the outside. Because they were looking from a temporal, earthly viewpoint. They didn't have spiritual focus. Sin is the reason we need to be clean. We need to be sanctified. We need to be set apart. We need to be holy. Ready for God's use. Jesus recognizes this in his disciples and begins to show this in verse 5 as he prepares the water for cleansing. Jesus Christ begins to clean the unclean, the disciples. 
one by one, the very feet of those who follow him, Christ the Master, is down cleaning the feet. And with this sincere humility that Peter has, he's demonstrating an unworthiness to be clean. He's not pure. He's not clean. He certainly isn't standing high enough to have one who is greater than him bend down and wash the dirty parts of his person. It's the spiritual truth of all Christians. And in one sense, we, we need to have this attitude of Peter that we're not worthy of Christ to clean our feet. But then that's where the grace steps in. The grace of God is so great that because we're not worthy yet, He still steps in. And now that which was mortal takes on immortality. That which had a, a finite value is now infinite in value because the blood of Christ has redeemed it. Peter, in this case, is making a not-so-silent appeal to the reality of Christ's infinite worth. He's saying, here is one who is too great to clean my feet. You would wash my feet, Lord? Here is one who is too great. Peter's recognizing, submitting to the Lordship of Christ, the authority, the reign, the inheritance that he has received as the first begotten of the Father. And so with the beginning of the foot washing, we see two things represented through the action of Peter. Keep these in mind as we move forward. Man's natural response and progression to the gospel being presented. So how Peter responds from these verses out, verse 5 forward, is going to show us man's natural response to the gospel. It will also show us man's natural reaction in the flesh to service. On one hand, the account would have us to believe that the room was filled with this silence. The disciples not saying a word. The greatest one to ever live himself down to the position of the servant. And he begins washing the feet. And I'm sure they're very embarrassed to have their master, their Lord, washing their feet. The first many, I'm sure, afraid and humiliated to make a remark, but then we know that the Lord makes it to Peter, very boisterous Peter, who can't resist. His rabbi washing his dirty feet, his master, his Lord. And so here it is, the first part, questioning. Peter questions Christ. This is the first point of the twofold response to salvation and service. It's to question. We question the salvation. We question the cleansing that Christ offers. In the same motive, we can sometimes question the service of others in the church. Those who belong to Christ. It's just natural. It's natural of the flesh. Peter wants to know why. Jesus says, you don't understand yet, Peter, but you will. It's the same nature that we see in children when they don't get their way. They don't understand what we do. That we do these things not because they're always fun or they're enjoyable, but they're, they're necessary. The best example would be a spanking. Kids need them. They don't enjoy them. They're not welcoming. They question why you would do that because it doesn't seem fun, but it's necessary. It's that you may deliver their soul from hell, the Bible says. And then in the same sense, as we consider it as a service, we do it because the Bible says we love our children. It's a service and a gospel. It's, it's, a, it's a twofold ministry there. And Peter questions, and this is the natural response. Like Peter, men love to question Christ's ability to save. They like to deny Christ's ability to save. And the method for his cleansing, people don't like it. Well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, the fact is that we don't serve your God. We serve the God, the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The second point is in verse 8. Peter says to him, never shall you wash my feet. Considering the gospel and service, this is rejection. This is the next progression in the response to gospel and service. The pride of the natural man is to reject, to say no to the cleansing power of Christ. 
we for some reason struggle with the fact that some people want to serve us. And we reject that. I'm guilty of this. It was just a few months ago, Brother Charlie brings it to my attention. Sometimes people in the church do something for you. Yes, you don't need them to. You don't want them to. You're very capable. But the fact is that you're robbing the people of God of a blessing. More importantly, you're trying to thwart the plans of God in whatever He's doing in the life of the servant. He's busting us down to servanthood so that we remember what He's done for us on the cross. And then when we deny someone the ability to serve us, the right to serve us, we're saying, well, Lord, I don't need it and I don't need you to fix whoever it is serving you. I don't want you to continue to sanctify them. That's what we're doing. We're stopping someone from sanctification if we do that. We're trying to thwart God's plan. It's humble for the one who is serving, but it's also humility that we face when someone is serving us. It's great. It's what God has purposed. But that's the second point, the rejection of service, the rejection of the gospel. The pride of even one who, in Peter's case, is certainly a believer in Jesus Christ. He even says, No, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Now the one who needs to be commanded is giving commands. It's what we do. People do it in the church all the time. You ever heard prayers? People are commanding the Lord to do something. This is what Peter was doing. He was telling the Lord to stop. Peter, from his fleshly viewpoint, didn't want to be cleansed by Christ. The only one who could cleanse him. He didn't understand the cross. His true humility is now evident. He doesn't want his master cleaning his feet. And in the same sense, he's not too humble to give Christ this order. You'll never wash me. Many times we're like Peter. (coughs) Too proud to accept the blessings that the Lord has to offer. Truth is, we're not worthy. But the same truth is that the Lord will continue to prosper us. The Lord will continue to bless His people. But He wants us to accept it with humility and not boasting in the things in which He's done, but boasting in the person by which He does these things, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we're too confident in our own strengths and we don't want someone to serve us so we reject the serving. Sometimes we're too quick to look over cleansing that we desperately need, knowing that we need Christ, knowing that we need to be cleansed of something, but we look past it because it's fun. It fulfills the desires of the flesh. But the response of our Lord is always this, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter's void of true understanding of what the foot washing represents up until this point. He's now faced with a glimmer of reality when Jesus says, to be mine, you've got to. He has to give him an ultimatum. He's saying, Peter, to be my disciple, to be with me, to be in the presence of God, you have to. And although he's yet to see the implications and the link to the salvation in Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter wants to be in fellowship with Christ so much that he displays the third characteristic that we see, the third response to the gospel in Christian service. We see it in verse 9. He says, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. (coughs) This is the third progression of the response to the gospel in response to service. It's abuse. Sometimes we're overindulging, we're misusing the cleansing power of Christ, the servant who is willing because he belongs to Christ to do something for someone else. Jesus was saying, you're already clean, Peter, but your feet just need some some rinsing, some cleaning. But Peter wanted a whole other bath. The fact is, we do that. We abuse the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We make excuses for the things that we do. We welcome sin because we know that we can be forgiven. And Paul says, may it never be. 
May we continue to sin that grace may abound. And that's just not the truth. Likewise, in service, when someone's willing to serve us, we shouldn't abuse it. Just because someone's willing to do something doesn't mean that we should always let them and we should take it to the point where we're purposely not doing what we ought just so somebody else will do it. It happens in the church. Jesus' foot washing is a sign of remembrance now for the salvation that we have in Christ. It's not only a sign of that, but it's a commandment to serve. It's a reminder that there's nothing that you can do for the Lord to become clean. He was the master, deserving to be served, yet he comes to serve because only he can clean what needed to be cleansed. It's a testimony of the truth of God's perfect sovereignty and salvation. <coughs> That he doesn't say, come and make yourself clean. Come and wash somebody else's feet. Come and wash your own feet. But he says, Peter, you must come. I must clean your feet. I must take away the filth of the earth. The feet are what's walking upon the earth. That which are swift to get us into trouble. To walk us into sin and temptation. You don't need to clean yourself or someone else to clean you, but you need Christ to clean you. You'll either reject the cleansing of Christ or like the disciples, you'll be forced to accept it with humility that one greater than you has come to do the work of a lowly servant. Nasty work, taking sin upon himself, Cleansing it with the righteousness that He has clothed Himself in. Stripping Himself of that righteousness to give to you. To clean those feet. To take upon His gird those things which are nasty. And to nail them to the cross. Jesus has sacrificed His high standing and rightful place. And glory to redeem a vile people to Himself. Cleansing them. Presenting them without spot or blemish. That's what the foot washing was. It wasn't an ordinance like some people would say that it is today that, well, that's not a real church. They don't wash people's feet. That's not what it is. You're missing the spiritual context of it. In that sense, you haven't got enough if that's what you think. If you think that foot washing is an ordinance, then you've missed it because it's not just about foot washing. It's about serving in every capacity. The brothers and sisters of Christ and Christ Himself Jesus not only poured the water, but He is the very same cleansing fountain. He is the water. Not only is He in this particular text the water that He was representative of in this spiritual cleansing, but He is also the nourishing water, the living water. John chapter 4, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jeremiah knew this. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And then if you really want a glimpse of the water who is Christ, the foot washing that's going on, consider this from Ephesians. Its immediate context is husbands and wives, but it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and He gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Cleansing by the washing of the water with the Word. Jesus Christ not only poured the water, Applied the water, but He is the water. He is that righteousness which cleans. Which brings you to a point where you can go before God without spot or blemish. You can be presented and accounted as righteous. The water who is Jesus Christ is the one who cleans what is unclean. He's also the one who gives life with the nourishment of His person through the living Word. He is the living Word. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Best summarizes foot washing. Consider this. For by grace you've been saved through faith. 
It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. The disciples, here they are before God. They've been saved. They've been made clean by the washing that comes from Jesus Christ. And they don't do it on their own. Just like Ephesians says, not your own doing. Not of yourselves. But Christ does it. He's even commanded them to go to the room to take the supper. They're waiting on Him. This is the church. This is the picture of the church. And it says it's a gift from God. Certainly, God in the presence of man washing the feet as a lowly servant. It's not a result of works. Because you're my servant, you couldn't work your way to this cleansing place. You couldn't gain some merit in which by then, okay, you've done enough, I'll wash you now. But he says, no, if you won't part with me, I have to do this. And it says, so that no one may boast. Notice that until he reaches Peter, no man is boasting. No disciple is reveling in the fact that his master is washing his feet like saying, look, he's washing my feet. They're silent. They're not boasting. They can't boast. They're humble. They've been put in this place of humility because Christ is doing all of the work. And then when we consider all of these things, we must get the big picture that not only is this a picture of salvation and the salvation that Christ offered on the cross, that He's cleansing that which is unclean, but it is a command for the church, for the people of Christ, the sheep that belong to Jesus Christ. It's a command for us to be servants. Philippians chapter 2 says this. It's on Christ's humility. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though in the Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message in the foot washing is that we have to be servants. We have to be humble. How could we think that our Lord and Savior, our Master must come and serve which He had to do. He most certainly did if we were to be reconciled to God. But how can we think that He must come and serve, put Himself in the lowliest place, a place of a servant, be obedient, be humble, live in humility, and then think that we as the church aren't responsible to do the same thing. It doesn't start or end with foot washing. But we're to be obedient. Obedient to the Word of Christ. We're to be humble as Christ was humble, we're not above anyone else. And like I said this morning, the greatness that we have in Christ isn't because we work our way up, but Christ has shown us why He's so great. He's the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. But Christ, who has already had a name higher and greater than any other name, is great because He worked Himself to the lowliest parts, to come and serve the creation which blasphemed him, which was wicked, which sinned against his father. They spat in his face. They denied him. They beat him, scourged him. Yet he comes to serve. If Christ has drawn us as his people, as his sheep, to himself, and he's changed us, he's washed us, he's made us clean, these wicked bodies that were once carnal, given to the carnalities of the flesh, do you think not also that He would call us to humility and servanthood? Most certainly He does. And so I ask you to think about this this week. If Christ is able to get down and wash the feet of wicked men, what should we not be willing to do for our brothers and sisters in Christ? 
knowing that we're not doing it just for the brothers and sisters, but that we're doing it for the Master to show Him that, Lord, as low as You were willing to go to be a servant to me, I'm willing to go that same place. Why? Because You were there. It's a great place to be a servant to those who belong to Christ because Christ was willing to go. That's what makes it great. He was there. And when we leave this place, the eternity that we're given, the everlasting life that we have in Christ, it's also wonderful because He is there. He's waiting. And we're looking forward to the hope. But we can't say that we're Christians. We can't claim to be disciples of Christ if we're not willing to serve others and if we don't recognize the fact that we need our feet cleaned. And so the title of the message was Getting Our Feet Wet. In one way, it's that we do. We need to be cleansed by Christ. But the world would say that getting your feet wet is to try something. And that's where the analogy ends. We don't have to try Christ. He's been tried. He has been found innocent. Yet He still died. And He's conquered sin. So we don't have to try Him. He's already been tried and He's true. Jesus Christ is the only means that we have for cleanliness. The only means that we have to be reconciled to God. The man, God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before You once again. Lord, we thank You for the opportunity to be here. Lord, the opportunity to hear Your Word. I pray for myself, Lord, and for the rest of your sheep in this congregation, Lord, that we would see ourselves not as a, a great people in statue, uh, financially, order by any other means, save it be spiritually in Christ. Lord, let us not boast, but bust us down, Lord, to servants. Lord, I don't ask you only to, to make us servants, Lord, but I ask You to make us willing, <coughs> obedient, joyful servants. Joyful to do the things that the world would never do. The things that the world would mock and make fun of, Lord, would You give us great joy in that this is the work of Your hand, Lord, the work that You would have us do, the work that brings glory to Your persons. We ask that You would continue to cleanse us, Lord of this unrighteousness. Lord, make us a people who are truly set apart. Lord, distinguish us from the people of this world that you may know that we are not of this world. Lord, let other people know that we belong to you. Let them see it by our speech and our actions. Lord, let them see it by the change that you bring about in cleansing us and making us righteous. Lord, but let them also see it in our service one to another and to your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. If you'd like to rise, we'll sing Amazing Grace. First line, I think it's Him, 343. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. We'll be back tonight at uh, 5 o'clock. Is that right? 5 o'clock? Yeah. And, and before you guys leave, I just want to make an announcement. We've got Brother Scott Cagle with us, and he's lost Kathy this week. If you would speak to him and console our brother.
Thank you. 